You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, William Green. Starting today, we'll every quarter present to our listeners what has made us richer, wiser, and happier. And William and I are excited to test out our new format. We'll be talking about what we recently learned from billionaires such as Redalio and Charlie Munger and reflect on the ever-relevant question of money and happiness. All right, enough talk. Let's get to it. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm joined by my co-host, William Green, today. William, how are you? I'm very well. I'm delighted to see you. I sound a bit raspy because it's, it's earlier in, in America and I'm just on my third cup of coffee. So I'm, I'm still waking up. <laughs> All right. So as I was saying there in the introduction, so William and I will be hosting a new quarterly series and we're calling it Richer, Wiser, Happier, which is a tribute to William's book. But it's also just because it's, a, it's just a fantastic title. You know? So the idea is that we are going to talk about every quarter. Well, let's see how the first one goes. But every quarter, <laughs> We're going to talk about what have we experienced over the past, well, quarter that had made us either richer, wiser, or happier. So that's sort of like the premise of this format that might be a bit more informal than what the US listener are usually tuning into. We will be playing different audio clips with guests from William's wonderful podcast, Richer, Wiser, Happier, that you can also find in this feed. For example, later in this episode, we'll play a clip from William's episode with the Redalio. But we won't, we won't constrain ourselves only to, to play an audio clip for our own podcast. We're also going to, to play a clip, for example, from Charlie Munger and the Q&A he did with the, uh, at, at the Daily Journal meeting here we had recently. So we have five segments. The first one, values or money. We're going to go right into that here in 30 seconds or whatnot. Then we have one called money and happiness. We have one called what we learned from Redalio. Another segment then what we learned from Charlie Munger. And then by the very end of this episode, we're going to talk about our top five books from this recent quarter, Q1 2023. So let's just go right into the first part. That won't be an audio clip, but something that I pondered on for quite some time. I spoke with Guy Spear here on We Study Billionaires 414, and he talks about investing in companies or not investing in companies that destroy value for society. And I guess I don't have to say it's evident that Guy is a fantastic, wonderful person, terrific investor. So I also think you get the both, both of both worlds investing with him. But I also kind of feel it raises the question, what if you had to choose? And so we're trying to like zoom out a bit, go up in the helicopter and talk about some of the more ethical things. And William, if I can give you an unreasonable premise here for my question. <laughs> so I think you've, you've told in another episode that you invest with high quality people such as Guy Spear and Matthew McLennan. So let's say that I could guarantee, for whatever reason, I could guarantee if, that if you invested with Guy, you would get 9%. Completely stable. I know I'm going to make it sound like a Bernie Madoff kind of thing. I want, I want to say it was around 9%, but it's not a Bernie Madoff thing. You could get 9% no matter what. Great person, terrific investor, wonderful human being. But you can also invest with another fund manager, guaranteed 11%. But you knew that that asset manager had bad values. Who would you invest with? And how do you think about this values or money dilemma? 
I'm deeply idiosyncratic, so I'm not saying anyone else should do what I do. But I, I sort of surprise myself with my answer, which is that I wouldn't hesitate to take the lower return to invest with the person I trust and like, and to avoid the person that I think is kind of shady or unpleasant or, or selfish or just out for themselves. That's a pretty idiosyncratic answer. But I think you have to, you have to really think hard about who's in your ecosystem. Who, I mean, I, I remember, look, I'm totally biased on this front as well, because Guy is a very old friend. He's someone not only who I've invested with for over 20 years, but he's one of my closest friends. So I just spent a, a week with him in Switzerland. So I'm totally biased here. But I, I feel like um, I want to have people in my ecosystem that I like and that I trust and who I feel have their interests aligned with me. And so when I look at someone like Guy, when I first invested with Guy many years ago, probably 21, 22 years ago, one of the reasons why I invested was not just because I thought he was very smart, which he clearly is. It was actually, it was partly because if I remember correctly, he had just got an incentive fee for having really good returns in some period. And then immediately the fund had gone down. And much to his lawyer's annoyance, he returned the incentive fee. Because he said, well, I didn't really earn it. You know, I, like, like, it's unfair for me to take it. And I thought, that's such an eccentric thing to do. And so I want to I be partnering with someone who's willing to go against their own interests. And then at the same time, he also had basically half of the money in the fund was his family's money, his father, his sister uncles, aunts, lots of family members, and then friends and partners of, of his father's. And I just thought, okay, so there's, there's an alignment here where if he messes up, he's going to suffer more than I do. And I, I think those two, those two instincts were actually correct, to align with people who are prepared to go against their own interests in your favor and who, have, who are eating their own cooking. This is something that Nassim Taleb talks about, right? You want to have skin in the game. You want a money manager who is going to get hurt alongside you or benefit alongside you. And so if there's some kind of takeaway for our, our listeners, I think it's really to think hard about whether the person you're investing with has your back or whether they're just out for themselves. And I think one of the easiest ways to tell is just by looking at the fee structure. So I, I look at, say, Guy's fee structure and the fee, the share class that I'm in, there's no annual management fee. And so he gets a percentage of the profits if he gets good performance. But if he doesn't perform, he doesn't get paid anything. And Monish Pabrai, who I think you invested with at one point, has a very similar structure. And it's, and it's, it's cloned from Buffett's structure in the 1950s partnerships that he had. And, and actually, Buffett cloned it from Ben Graham. And it's something that most people can't afford to do, right? Most, most hedge fund managers are just, they'd rather have a, a structure where they get 2% of the assets in a management fee, regardless of whether they do lousily or not, and then 20% of the profits. And so as, as Monish would say, it's uh, heads I win, tails you lose. And I, I, I want to be partnering with people who are looking out for me. And, and for the same reason, I invest in Berkshire Hathaway, not because I think it's going to have the greatest returns on earth. There's no fee. You're not paying them expenses. They're 
Munger and Buffett are making $100,000 a year to run this enormous business, and you're getting the benefits of the float and all of their expertise and brilliance and the competent, honorable people they've got working for them. And so I don't really know how Guy's going to do. I don't really know how Berkshire's going to do. But at least I feel like they've stacked it in my favor, that they're treating me as a partner and they're trying to make money with me, not off me. And so that's, that's critical. But, but then you have to kind of also hedge against your own blindness. So what if, I'm, what if I'm wrong in my assessment of those people? And so even though I'm trusting certain people to behave in an honorable way, I'm still diversifying in case I'm wrong. So I, I remember John Templeton telling me many years ago that for regular investors, you should probably own five or six funds that give you exposure to different parts of the market. And so anytime I get carried away and I fall in love with some, some investor or some fund or some stock, and I think I should pile into this, I just remind myself, well, I, I've been wrong before. Why should, why, should I, why should I assume, as Templeton would say, why should I have the arrogance of believing that I found the one fund, the one money manager, the one asset class. And so, so, yeah, I want to invest with people who I think are honorable and decent and have aligned interests with my interests. But I still want, I still want, to, want to diversify in case I'm wrong. I think that's super, super smart. And when, just, to, just to one thing about like, uh, investing with the right people, what you said before about this ethics, it, it really makes me think of the episode you did with Fred Martin not too long ago when he talked about how money manage, management, at least for him, was about foregoing money to help clients get better returns. Because if a fund is big enough, it, you can't get the same returns if you can whenever it's smaller. And, and think about that asset managers are generally, they're incentivized to manage as, as much money as they possibly can, because whether it's a two or 20 model, whatever it is, generally you make more money if you manage more money, even though it's not to the benefit of your investors. Yeah. And I think there are clues in someone's past behavior. I was discussing this with Tom Gaynor on an episode that'll come out shortly, where I was saying, how can you tell whether the person you're dealing with has integrity? And he said, well, look, there are clues in their past behavior. And so you look at Fred Martin, and many years ago, he closed his small cap strategy to new investors when it, was, it had something like $400 million in assets. And so in the 15 or 18 or whatever years since then, he could have made tens of millions of dollars in fees that he was willing to forego because he wanted to keep it small because he said it was really impossible to manage a huge fund that invested in small cap stocks. So there's someone who actually has demonstrated in his past behavior that he cares really a great deal about his, his investors. So, so look, look for the clues, look for the past behavior, look for the fee structure. You don't just want to believe someone because they say the right things. I think there's, there's usually, it's, it sounds like an, an odd analogy, but it's like when you see someone who's committed a crime. If they're a, a rapist, for example, sorry to use a sort of dark example, you tend to see that they had the same modus operandi multiple times. And so I think when you see people behaving poorly, they behaved poorly multiple times. And um, when you see people behaving well, you know, I've, I've seen it with Guy multiple times where that same instinct that he had with returning the incentive fee early on, he did something recently where he and, uh, uh, and, and you have to accept the fact that I'm totally biased on this because he's a good friend. So I'm not trying to say this is a shill for Guy. 
But they did something recently where they figured out that basically because the fund had had a bad year last year, they could actually offer existing investors or new investors the opportunity to invest at a previous high watermark, which I, I'm not explaining well, but it basically meant that you know you got the benefits of the fact that it had done poorly, so that you would you'd be investing with lower expenses, lower fees going forward. And so they basically figured out a way to take money out of Guy's pocket and give it to the investors. And I, I remember once Guy was talking to Mark Chapman, I think it was, who works sort of, I, I guess, like the CFO at Aquamarine, Guy's company. And it said um, they were talking about the new fee structure where, you know, you could be in a five-year share class where you would get no, no um, Guy would get no money at all if he didn't perform well. And Mark was like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, you, you might make no money for the next five years. And Guy was like, yeah, welcome to the world of aligned interests. And I, I think that's really interesting when someone's prepared to do that. It's, um, that just makes me feel good. I don't know how good his performance will be, but there's a record of behaving in an honorable way that I like. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and very few people, very few people just, does that you know they they promise a lot but they're they're not ready to to take the pain together with you one one quick example before we got our own sales team here on the podcast network we got constantly asked whether or not someone could do it for us and they they guaranteed like we could say i don't know do one million dollars i was like that's great but do we have a guarantee that if you if you don't you supplement up to a million dollars and like no 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 no, we can't do that but you use the word guaranteed so what does that mean that means we're going to do our absolute best. Okay, so you take the upside with us. That's great. But you also take the downside because we could also do X, Y, C. Like, no, 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 no. We only want to take... They didn't use the word, we're only going to take the upside with you. But that, that is how most people are wired. And, you know, that's, that's the way it is. And that's also why it's so wonderful whenever you meet with people like Guy or Manish or... I, I, I come from a very normal, if I can use that word, because... Uh, uh, it's, it's always dangerous to use words like normal, but a, a typical Danish middle-class background. And I wouldn't say that I was taught that people in the financial industry was bad people. Not like that, but they were definitely not good people. And I think, think there was a part of me who I'd be really, really happy to, and don't get me wrong, I definitely met bad people. I, I started in the financial industry. I, I've seen bad people there. Don't get me wrong, but you also meet wonderful people, just like you, all, you, you do in all walks of, uh, of life. Well, also, Stig, remember that thing that Buffett said to Monish and Guy at their charity lunch back in, I think, 2008 it was, where they paid $650,100 to have a charity lunch with Buffett. And Buffett said to them during that lunch, I don't want to be in debt because I don't want to see what I'm capable of doing. And Guy has said to me, look, if even Warren is vulnerable under certain circumstances where he, could behave, he thinks he could behave poorly, if he were under pressure financially. Um, what about the rest of us? <laughs> the rest of us are that much more vulnerable. And so I think it's not just a matter of partnering with honest and honorable people. It's also that even decent people can do terrible stuff when they're in vulnerable situations. And I see that with myself where when I'm, when I'm stressed out, I'm much more unpleasant <laughs> than, than when I'm unstressed. And so I think you want to structure your life in ways that are more likely to tilt the odds of your behaving decently. And so that means 
living within your means, not not having an excess of debt, so you'll you'll panic, not being so not having such an expensive lifestyle that you need to take advantage of other people. <laughs> A guy once said to me, "Look, you have to move the candy away from you." And which is metaphorical because in both of our cases, we, we've not been very good at moving the chocolate and the, uh, the cappuccinos away from us. But I think, I think it's true. You want to structure your life so that, so that there's not as much temptation to behave poorly. And so if you're investing with somebody who, you know, I, when I went to stay with, with Guy recently in Switzerland, he lives very nicely, but it was really interesting. We drove back from Klosters in the mountains to, to his home in Zurich. We were in his old Porsche, which is the same Porsche he picked me up in from the airport all those years ago when we were working on his book, The Educational Value Investor. And it's now 16, 17 years old. And so it's still a really nice car, but it's not kind of glamorous to drive a 16 or 17-year-old car. And so I think he's structured his life so he's not put himself in a situation of jeopardy where he needs to behave in an unethical way. And that... That's important for me. I, I need to think about how to structure my finances so that I'm not going to panic, but also how to structure other aspects of my ecosystem so that I'm likely to behave well. And, and so this gets at who you invest with, who you hang out with, who your friends are, even what you're reading. Think of Munger talking about hanging out with the eminent dead by reading certain things. And so you want to structure your entire ecosystem so that you're less likely to succumb to the, to the less noble side of your, your character, I think. Perhaps one very small example of that. Now we just talked about the imminent death, so that's, that's, a, that's a tough act to, to follow, William. But you know, I, I think a lot about how to design my, my life in, in, in a way to optimize for happiness. And I'm, I'm sort of like going, going straight to the source whenever I say optimize for happiness. I remember that Preston and I read a book, I don't know, it was probably five, seven years ago, it was called Delivering Happiness by a gentleman called Tony Shea, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. And he said that if you continue asking a person why, like if, if they do X, Y, Z, like continue to ask why, the fifth time or before they're going to say, because it makes me happy or they think it makes them happy. And you could then argue that, you know, it's not making them happy, <laughs> but, but that's not so much the point. The point is that they're doing it because they think it makes them happy, even people doing terrible things. So I thought a lot about that. And I've tried going back to the original topic about how to optimize for, for happiness and how does that relate to investing. And so I remember we had John Huber on the show a long time ago, and he was talking about Facebook, uh, which is called Meta Today. And he talked about why it was such a great investment and why you could expect XYZ in return. And, and he was completely right, by the way. <laughs> But I remember thinking about it and I'm like, I, I understand the business. Uh, I used to use the product. I can see the business case. It was very easy to analyze, but I, I did not want to invest in it. Meta makes me sad. <laughs> like, I, I know it probably comes across and yeah, I have a good friend who works there and they're probably wonderful people working at Meta and they're making a lot of people happy. Don't get me wrong, but like for different reasons, the company Meta makes me sad. And I also think that they, to some extent, do some not so good things for society. Uh, I could be completely wrong or right about that. That's not so much the point. But I, I remember thinking, 
I could be making money on Meta. Of course, you could also argue I could be wrong, but I could make money. I just don't want to make that bet because that means I have to read their annual reports. Every time I hear something about it in the news, I have to think about the company. I just don't want that life, even if it came with a profit because I optimize for happiness. I know it probably comes across as, as naive, but it's, it's one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, which sort of like goes back to this unreasonable thing I said to you before about William, like, okay, so you can invest with a wonderful person with a lower return. And how do you think about that? So it was just a different way of going to that topic. No, I think it's a really important insight. And look, we're not being totally naive here because it's not like we would invest in a lousy company or with a lousy fund manager who we thought was lazy and incompetent just because we thought they were a nice guy or that the company was a really ethical company that treated its employees fabulously. You want to invest with talented, capable, driven people and in good businesses. But I think I, you know, you're not just optimizing for profits. I mean, I, I, that's not the most important thing for me. I, I, when I think about my financial goals, I want to be financially independent and free and able to do whatever I want to do. I don't need to drive a Ferrari. I don't need to have the fanciest house. It just, that's not interesting to me. And so it's not uninteresting, but actually, no, I, I, I mean, without wanting to sound judgmental, I, I would be slightly embarrassed to drive a Ferrari. And it's not, that's not a judgment on the people who do. I just think it would be kind of, it, it wouldn't suit my personality. So for me, when I think of my, my goals and my fan, financial ambitions, which is sort of basically to live the way I want to live without being answerable to anybody, to be in charge of my own schedule, my own time, where I go on vacation, whether I stay in a really nice hotel. I'm a sucker for really nice hotels. So it's not like I've taken a vow of poverty. You know, I'm a sucker for really good food and stuff like that and, and expensive clothes. Like that, that are, they're not flashy, but they're really well made. So it's not, it's not like I'm some kind of monk. But to get that sort of lifestyle, if I were to make 10% a year, that would be amazing. I'd double every seven years. And I don't know, is that before tax? Is it after tax? I don't know. Is it, does it mean I actually have to supplement it by continuing to add to the pot myself by saving more? Maybe. Maybe there are years where you make minus 10%, but you add 20%. You, you know, so you just keep beefing up what you're investing. But if I act in that way, in a, act, investing in a sustainable way, trying to get a decent return, I'll be fine. So I actually don't need to make huge compromises where I take wild risk or invest with someone who's kind of scummy, but will probably do really well. So I think part of it actually, Stig, just requires you to know what the, uh, what the destination is that you're heading for, that you're aiming for. And then you work backwards from there, which is something I write about when I write about um, Nick Sleep in my book, this idea of starting with a desirable destination and then working backwards to figure out, well, what are the inputs that'll get you there? And the inputs that'll get us to uh, being financially independent and secure, I think are saving, living within our means, investing responsibly, diversifying so that we don't blow ourselves up, not trusting one person or one country or one bank or one brokerage firm or something to an absurd degree so that then if you're wrong, you get blown up. So I think start with the destination and then work backwards to figure out the inputs that are likely to get you there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So if we say that the destination is to be happy, I sort of like want to, want to have a discussion about what kind of role does money playing that. And it's just, it's just a, I've always been fascinated by that question. I, I remember again, like growing up, I, I hope you don't bill me for like a shrink kind of session after William, but I, I remember having the, having this a background where I was taught that it wasn't because anything in my family had anything against rich people, but it was, it was definitely like, it's not like rich people are like happier. They just have different problems. I remember there was, there was one thing we, uh, we talked about but at the same time, I also was in a community where it seemed like everyone wanted to have more money. And I remember as a kid, I was like, that makes no sense. We just, <laughs> we just talked about how money doesn't make you happy. And then everyone still wants more money. You know, as, as a kid growing up, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. And so whenever I read like articles or see something in the media and, you know, it, I kind of feel sometimes whenever there's a, million, a billionaire who had problems, you know, it's, 
there's almost like an element of gloating in a way where it's it's not fair that this person is a is a billionaire and has a great life. You know, it's almost like we need to be some kind of it should be some kind of universal karma or something around that. And so, I know that you have uh, spent a lot of time with billionaires and high net worth uh, individuals and. You can say that you know we've done that here on the show also, but I know you you really know the many of those people well. You've flown arrived in their private jets and like really really gotten to know them. What kind of role does money play in the happiness of the richest people? Yeah, I, well, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a couple of very specific examples of people I've talked to about this sort of thing or people I've I've observed. So, so I got to spend a bunch of time with Bill Miller the other day, and I, I've spent a lot of time with Bill over the years. And Bill, as most of our listeners will know, is one of the one of the great investors of our time. He had this incredible, unprecedented streak of beating the market for fifteen years running. Then had a terrible period during two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and then has had this unbelievable recovery rebound where his fund was like in the top one percent of all funds of the next decade or twelve years or something like that. And he just and he just retired at the end of the year, and it's now at the end of 2022, and is now handing over the reins to his son Bill the Fourth, and to Samantha Macklemore, who I'll have on the podcast very very shortly. And so I've interviewed Bill many times over the last 22 years, for the best part of 100 hours, I think. And so I've really seen him in all of these periods, like during the the glory days when he was like totally on top of the world during that 15 year streak, then during the you know in the aftermath of the really difficult time. When he got crushed during the global financial crisis, then during the rebound where he got kind of vindicated, and now again, I'm seeing him now. He's probably about 71, 72, something like that. And I was really struck when I saw him the other day, just how happy he was. And I think there are some some observations about what I think makes him happy that might be kind of to some degree universal. So, so the first thing is. A, he just got remarried to a really lovely woman who I, I met, who's just, just great. So he's got great relationships, right? And he's, he's worked with Samantha Macklemore for 20 years. He's worked with his son, Bill IV, for all these years. Uh, so he's worked with great people. He's got the same assistant, Darlene Orange, that he had when I first was writing about him, when I was writing a profile for Fortune of him back after 9-11. Um, so he's got people he really likes around him who are really decent and who he trusts and who trust him. So that's really key. So the relationship part is really important. Then he, he has tremendous autonomy increasingly. So there was a period when he worked at Leg Mason where it was a public company and he had all of the accountability to the board and um, you know, even writing shareholder letters. There would be like a big process, right? There were things you had, had to say or couldn't say or whatever, you know, lots of oversight. And I think part of, part of what I've seen with Bill over the years is he's become more and more autonomous. There's, there's this sense in which it's Bill unbound. And now, even more so, now he's not responsible for managing anyone else's money. And he basically, you know, he's the biggest investor in, in, in the funds that his company manages, and he still has a, a, an ownership stake in, in, the, in the company. But He's basically responsible now for his own portfolio, which basically consists for the most part of three investments. And so he's able to concentrate massively in a way that he couldn't for regular shareholders. I mean, he's got an enormous stake in Amazon that he's owned for more than 20 years, an enormous stake in Bitcoin. And so most people, 
would be like, that's crazy to have all of your money to have, you know, 70, 80, 90% at times of your money in two assets that are, are fairly risky. But his cost basis for both is tiny, right? Like $200 a coin, he started buying Bitcoin at and bought much of his stake at $500 around there. And Amazon, you know, basically his cost basis now that after the split is something like under a dollar a share. So he's made so much money off them and he's owned them for, for long enough that, you know, his cost basis is almost zero. But so he's investing in a way that's totally true to himself, total autonomy. And I think there's a, there's a real clue there to what actually makes for happiness. It's, it's living in a way that suits you with all of your idiosyncrasies. And so there was a, I think I've told you this story before. There was a, there was a time when um, I was interviewing Bill at his home in, in Maryland a few years ago when I was working on, on my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. And I spent about a day and a half or two days with him in Maryland where he has a home. And, um, you know, he, was, he would come in wearing the same black T-shirt or the, or the same type of black T-shirt and jeans every day. And he had kind of a, a hole in his cashmere socks. And he's like, you know, he's dressed the way he wants. He's, he's in charge of his time. And he said somebody had asked him to be the keynote speaker at a gala event. And he said, well, what's the dress code? And they said, well, it's black tie. You'd have to wear a tuxedo. And he's like, no, I threw out my tuxedo and I'm never buying another one. And so he's structured his life in a way that he's got rid of a lot of the stuff that he doesn't like to do. And so I was talking to his wife the other day and she was like, well, it's amazing. Now he can really just read and do the things that read and invest and take advantage of the fact that he's got this really brilliant brain. And it's, it's just great. You know, it's, it is like Miller Unbound. So I think, you know, when I look at, things like that, that's clonable for me, right? It's not like I have the wealth of Bill Miller, even a fraction of it. But I can say I want to I structure my life as much as I can in a way that's true to my own weirdness, my own idiosyncrasy, my own values, my own, my own sense of what's enriching. And so for me to be able to spend my morning chatting with you as a friend, talking about interesting subjects to you and me, that's a, that's a real joy. That's a source of pleasure. I mean, I, as I was coming into my office here, I sort of started beaming and I was like, this is great. You know, I get to, I get to chat with Stig. I get to be in this beautiful office space that I share with, with this friend of mine, Matt Ladma, who's a really lovely guy. And, um, you know, I'm in charge of my own structure and there's that my own time. And there's no one really to tell me that I can't drink coffee as I'm on the podcast, even though it looks unprofessional. <laughs> and, you know, I'm kind of wearing a semi-clean shirt or whatever. You know, it's like I'm sort of in, in charge. And for me, as somebody who really values autonomy, who really values not being told what to do, that's incredibly valuable. I value that more than the money. And so I think Bill, similarly, when I look at Bill, he's structured his life in a way that suits him. And, 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 and I see that again and again with the, with the happiest investors that I've seen that they're, they're, doing, they're doing what they want, right? So he's doing intellectually enriching work, um, working with people he likes, totally independent, true to himself. And, and then also he's doing a lot of charitable stuff, right? So Bill has given, uh, I think he gave $75 million to Johns Hopkins to the philosophy department. So he's, he's a philosopher himself. He came out of the PhD program at Johns Hopkins couldn't complete his studies and then because uh, he couldn't really afford to because he came from a very modest family. His father was a taxi driver, among other things. And, and so he didn't come from money. And, 
and studying philosophy has had a profound impact on his success. So he's, so he's given back to the philosophy department at Johns Hopkins. He's on the investment committee at Johns Hopkins. So he's helping his alma mater. He's learned an enormous amount from the Santa Fe Institute where they study complexity science. And so that helped him to invest very early in things like AOL and Google and Dell and Amazon. So he's given, given them, I think, a gift of $50 million. And so, so it's not just that he's got a yacht and a private plane and stuff, which he does have, which is nice. And he's got a really nice house in Maryland and a really nice house in Florida. I haven't seen the house in Florida, but I know it's on, a, on an island. And I think, you, you, you know, it's, I, I'm sure it's pretty luxurious. And he's got an amazing book collection. So he's got the toys and baubles, but he's also giving money away to things that, are, that have helped him and that he thinks are going to help others, right? You know, the study of complexity science has all sorts of implications in terms of climate change, AI, things like that. So, so I think that's another really important component of happiness. There's got to be some element of sharing built in, some bigger purpose. It's not, it's, it's not that the, the yacht and the plane are not enjoyable, right? Those are, those are fun things to have for him. But, um, but he's sharing stuff. He's giving back. So I think, I, I hope that gives a few clues as to the, the, the role of money in, in the lives of these people. It's not, it's, not, it's not enough just to be rich. Yeah, they're, they're very competitive. There is a sense in which the, the money is a kind of scorecard. It's a marker of success. But it's much more than that. I mean, Howard Marks once said to me that, that being a billionaire had made him less fearful. So there was a psychological benefit for him. But it's not, I, I don't know. I mean, Howard, Howard had, I, I know at one point he bought a home in New York for $52 million or something. So he lives very luxuriously. But, but really, I think, again, he's somebody who really loves ideas. In, in my book, I, I said his real drug is, is ideas, not money. And I think that's true. He's someone who loves to read, loves to think, and he gets great pleasure out of teaching people stuff, out of sharing ideas. So again, he's, he's structured his life in such a way that it, he's, you know, I think, I think he has probably about a thousand people working at Oak Tree but they're not really reporting to him. So he's not got any management responsibility. He's really like the philosopher king at Oak Tree, whose job is to think about things like risk and uncertainty and write about it in a way that's helpful to his clients and to regular people who read his memos. So again, structuring his life in a way that's true to him. Which if, if we have to boil it down to one thing, if, if I can just say like a, that autonomy is just so important, regardless of, of, of what, but you, what fancies you? And it's easier to have that autonomy if you have money. So when, whenever we started the podcast a long time ago, there's one book in particular that really, really made an impact on how I saw this good life, for the lack of better words. And it, it's a book called Call Me Ted. It's not a good book, by the way. So that was not why it made a big impact on me. But it's about Ted Turner. And I don't know what he's most famous for today, perhaps because he gave a, a billion dollars to United Nations. I'm not, I'm not completely sure. What. He founded CNN, right? Yeah, he yes, he founded the, CNN. Yes. CNN. That's a pretty good contribution. To that's, the that's, that's probably what he is. Yeah. So he founded CNN, you know, Turner Broadcasting System, merged with Time Warner, and then later at the biggest corporate murder, $160 billion at the time with AOL, which was an interesting case in itself. But it, it, but it was really that merger that was 
to me, that was just really interesting because he, for all intents and purposes, had all the money in the world. At least whenever you're, you're looking from my vantage point, whether you have $100 billion Warren Buffett money or you have a billion dollars called me Ted money, it's the same. It's probably not the same if you have a billion dollars, but at least to me, it's the same if you have a, a hundred or one of them. And um, he talked about his personal struggles in that book and how, how proud he was at CNN, how he, how he invented a new type of reporting. It was, it was actually because of the Iraq war and, and how everything was covered, how they played a role in that, in that war. But he was so proud at so, at so many things, which you know, it was wonderful. Uh, don't get me wrong. And then he talked about this painful period of his life where he was doing the merger. He was like, now a minority shareholder, minority voting rights. He couldn't really do what he wanted to do. He had to like have like this famous press conference where like he had to say things he didn't want to say. And you would, you would be thinking like this guy, he can do anything in the world. He's a billionaire, but he felt so constrained to your point before about Bill, uh, Bill Miller. Like all the different tasks that you now have being one of the guys in this public company, one of the faces of that, he just had, he felt he didn't have any autonomy. Like it was clear that he had a big ego and there was, there was hurt because now he was like, I don't know, the second most important guy in this company with tens of thousands of, and the rest of us might be like, wow, you're the second most important. But to him, you know, he was the first loser, you know, that's one winner. And then he's the first loser. Like, and so the reason why I want to bring up that book is, I, I remember thinking a lot about it and, and thinking if I would ever to be so lucky, I would never ever put myself in such a, a situation where you have everything in the world and you're just miserable because you, are, you don't have the right yardstick. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a great phrase that I, I spent a lot of time with a multi-billionaire who I, I helped him write his memoir that, that hasn't been published yet. And I, I, I have no idea whether it will be, but He's, he's a very, very interesting guy. And he said to me at one point, he talked about, you know, he, he knows a lot of the richest people in the world and knows how miserable many, many of them are. And he said to me, he, talk, he used the phrase, poor rich people and rich poor people. And I thought that was really revealing that there are people who are incredibly rich externally, but actually are incredibly poor. And that's, it's difficult because there's some part of us, as you were saying before, people like to gloat about the problems of the of the rich, and I don't think this is a this is a, about that. It's about understanding that if your life is empty in certain ways, for example, in terms of of um, peace of mind or friendship and great family relationships, it's pretty barren. And this was one of the interesting things that I learned from interviewing someone like Ed Thorpe, right? Who, as uh, we've talked about Ed before on the show, right? This is this is a guy who's probably the greatest game player in the history of investing. He's a guy who who beat the market at blackjack, beat the market at um, I, I, so many different games, right? At, even at roulette. Yes, he, I was just about to say even at roulette, and people might be thinking, how is that possible? Well, meet Ed Thorpe. He had to yeah, use a bit of different techniques, but it. I, he would he would swear to this day it was not illegal at the time. It is now what he did, but what he what he technically did at the time wasn't illegal. Yeah, he's a he's a true genius and and an amazing game player. And so I said to him, "Look, if if you were approaching life as a game, how do you stack the odds in your favor so you win?" And one of the things he said to me is, um, "Well, look, who you spend your time with is probably the most important thing of all." 
And and Munger once, um, I think Munger gave Ed Thorpe's book, Man for All Markets, to Monish at one point. And he said to Monish, um, you'll notice it's actually a love story. And it's not really a love story, but there is an element in there of Ed's love for his wife of more than 50 years who passed away and now he's remarried. But um, I think of Ed as somebody who never underestimated the importance of relationships. And so so when you're, when you're thinking about what you want to clone from the greatest investors or the, the richest, most successful people in the world, you don't want to clone the wrong thing, right? So you don't want to assume that enormous amounts of money are going to make you happy because then finally you'll be independent and autonomous and can do everything you want and can, don't have to fly on commercial planes and stuff. Yeah, that stuff's true. But what I think is much more important is the relationships. It's, it's, it's who you're hanging out with. And, and Munger said this great thing where he was talking about Sumner Redstone, right? Who I, I've never met um, and, and he passed away now. But Munger said that he went to Harvard Law School, I think, with Sumner Redstone. And he said, you know, he was a, he was a tough tomato and he ended up richer than, than I was. So some people would say he's more successful. But he said, when I... Um, when I think of Sumner Redstone, all my life, he's an example of what I didn't want to be. And he said, even his wives and kids hated him. And I have no idea if that's true. But when, when, I, asked, um, when I asked Munger what we could learn from him and Warren about how to have a happy life, he immediately started talking about relationships. That, that was, he was talking about um, the people in their lives, the people they'd partnered with, how they had so many honorable, decent people in his life. And he said, he said, look, I've been, a, I've been a good partner to Warren and he's been a marvelous partner to me. And so his entire success is built not just on his intellectual brilliance, but actually on his partnership with Warren. So I think, I think that gives you a clue. And so when you're thinking of, of the, the desirable destination that you're working towards in your life and you're thinking, okay, I want to look back at the end of my life and think, yeah, I had a happy and rich and and truly abundant life, not just a financially abundant life, but a truly abundant life. What does that consist of for you? And I, I'm pretty sure that an enormous part of that is actually about relationships. And, and so, so then you have to really ask yourself, what are the inputs in order for me to get good relationships? Well, I have to behave better. <laughs> I have to, have to show up for my friends. I have to try to be more decent. I have to in, invest time in those relationships. And there have certainly been times in my life where I got off track and I, I was so busy working that I didn't invest much time at all or much energy in my relationships. It felt like they were kind of a distraction. And maybe it was necessary at the time, but I look back and I, 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 I'm sort of trying to make up for lost time because I, I, I think it made for a poorer life, even though externally it probably felt more successful. But I don't, I don't think it made me happy because, uh, you know, you you need people on the path with you who are who are sort of fellow fellow travelers and who can support you when you're when you're miserable and down and who enjoy your successes and who you know you can celebrate their successes so i think i i, I don't know that that to me is an absolutely central aspect of a happy and truly abundant life good relationships and peace of mind that's that's the that's the other thing and so you got to figure out how are you going to get peace of mind and um so you've got to structure your investments in a way that gives you peace of mind, right? If you're, I mean, in my, in my interview with Bill Miller on the podcast a few months back, I was asking him, how, how do you deal with stress as a regular investor, uh, deal with the tension? And he said, you know, 
follow the advice. I think it was from JP Morgan himself, where he said, in, invest down to your sleeping point. You know, you've got to invest in a way that allows you to sleep. And so, so having peace of mind in your, in your investments, in your schedule, in your things like exercise and meditation, you know, you, you, you have to really think about how they're going to help you build equanimity. Whenever we are in the investing world and we're talking about meditation, uh, we have to talk about Ray Dalio. One of the billionaires we had here on the show that have impressed me the most, uh, for sure. And you recently spoke with Ray on episode 22 on the Richer, Wiser, Happier show. I would like to play this clip for you, William, and together with the audience, we can listen in here. So let's go back, say, to that example from 1982, where I think there was a debt crisis where Mexico defaults on its debt. Uh, we have the worst debt crisis since the Great Depression. And, and you bet, I think, that the stock market and the economy would be battered by this. And instead, it actually strengthened. And it was sufficiently disastrous that you had to fire almost everyone at Bridgewater and ended up borrowing four grand from your father. When you think of that process in that case, how you went through this process of, of reflection on what went wrong, what happened, what flaws of yours this exposed, or what misperceptions of yours, and, and how, you, how you develop principles based on that, how, how would that be a good microcosm of what we should do when we screw up? Oh, that's, it was so good. It was such a painful experience. I think, and, and then I really learned pain plus reflection equals progress. That's one of the principles. I learned that every time I have an encounter, that it's like a puzzle, that if I can solve the puzzle, you know, what should I do differently or how should I deal with it? I would get a gem and the gem would be a new principle and a learning that would improve my life. And so in that particular case, I learned to fear and deal well with the possibility of being wrong. I, it gave me um, a humility I needed to balance with my audacity. In other words, it made me think, how do I know I'm right? And then through that process, to try to find, out of curiosity, the smartest people I could who disagreed with me and to study their reasoning. And it made me learn really how to diversify my bets so that I could, by diversifying my bets, I could radically reduce my risk without re reducing my returns. And it let me re also reflect on life. Like I was at a juncture, I was broke. And I, you know, it was. Do I go get a, a job? Do I put on a jacket and tie and take the, you know, the railroad into the city and work at Wall Street or something? Or do I not? And it was like I was sitting on one side of a jungle and I could, I could have this safe life by sitting on the one side of the jungle and not going into the jungle. But I knew that if I wanted to have a great life, I had to cross this jungle of all these threats in the jungle and survive. And then I sort of said, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to live this, this safe life or, and then it won't be as terrific? Or am I going to go into the jungle? And how would I go into the jungle? And then I realized, I learned, okay, let me go into the jungle with people who would be on the mission with me and could see things I couldn't see. And we would protect each other as we went into this jungle. And I found out um, from that experience 
that I didn't want to get to the other side of the jungle to the success and sit on the success because I found being in the jungle with these people or being on the mission with those people, even through the ups and downs and the threats was rewarding. That all came from reflections of that terrible mistake, that terrible mistake. We learn a lot from pain. You know, life, I think, is it's almost a trick that what happens is the second order consequences are so often the opposite of the first order consequences. In other words, the things that are really good for us uh, don't feel good. And the things that are bad for us feel good. You know, okay, you eat, you know, the tasty stuff is the stuff that is not probably good for you. The exercise that might be painful is the thing that you don't want to do and you want to do the painful. So quite often pain or that is the opposite. It's a trick. Can you do the things that are really good for you? And so those kinds of reflections, I think, were very powerful. And our experience really brought a lot of those. And from those lessons that I learned, that was the bottom. In other words, from that point, while there have been some ups and downs, it was almost totally up, all, almost all the way. There have been, of course, twists and turns and bumps and personal things, of course, terrible personal things that have happened. I lost a son. I, you know, all of those things. But to reflect on reality, okay, what does it teach you about reality and, and whatever, and, and how do you approach that? All of those reflections, I've learned a lot from those reflections. And so it's that, you know, that instance, but, you know, many since. So this is just one of my favorite book of all times, uh, Redelius book, Principles. So, well, just to, to be clear, you, you were talking about his book, like the, the interactive book, Principles, and then there was the other book called Principles. I don't know if I... Yeah, the new one is called Your Personal Journal. I think it's Principles, colon, Your, your Personal Journal. And it's about how to develop your own, your own principles. Just this clip here in itself is just, there's so many things to talk about. Uh, and of course, I would encourage everyone to actually go and listen to the entire episode. But he talks about pain plus reflection equals progress. I mean, that's just... It's just so powerful. And I see the lack of that all the time. Not the pain part. We see pain everywhere. But the reflection part, you know, I I meet so many people where in investing and whenever they make a really good investment, it's because of their skills. Of course, because of the skills. And then if they lose money, it's bad luck. Like, oh my God, how could I foresee that XYZ happened? Like, so it's just bad luck. So it's so refreshing to hear Dalio talk about how he reflected and grew as a person from being wiped out in 1982. You specifically asked him about it and that experience. And the first thing he said was, well, it was, it was wonderful. Or I, I might not quote him correctly, but it wasn't like, oh, it was terrible. Like, no, of course it was terrible. Said, oh, but it was so good. It, it yes, yes exactly. Experience. Yeah. And you might be like, what? Really? But, but yes, like that was, that was a gift and a, a gift that really changed his, his life uh, onward. And I, I like to use this example where, where I wanted to explain the reason for it. So the brain is 2-3% of your body mass, but consumes 25% of your energy. And what that means is that your, your brain is wired to be lazy. It doesn't really want to work unless you force it to work. It's a very interesting topic in itself. And you know, if, if, if you want to, to learn more about that, 
Dan Kahneman's wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is, is definitely the source to, to go to. But most people choose not to reflect. Uh, a matter of fact, in, in 1925, Bertrand Russell, he had this wonderful quote in, the, uh, in his book, The ABC of uh, Relativity. Most people would die sooner than think. In fact, they do so. Unquote. Uh, I, I just kind of feel that was, uh, that, was, that was wonderful. And so we all know that if you're easy on your, your habits, life will be hard on you. And if you're hard on your habits, life will be easy on you. Uh, and this is not easy. We just, we're not prone to, to think like that. I mean, I don't know how you feel, William, but whenever something hurts in my life, the first thing I want to do is to get away from it. I mean, I, I, I like to talk about it from an intellectual perspective. Oh, we should, we should learn from it and we should reflect. But that, that's not the first thing that goes, at least through my mind, it's just, I just don't want it to hurt anymore. But I, I want to throw it over to you, William. What did you take away from your from interview with Dalio? Let's, let's start there and then and perhaps break it down. Well, so much. I, I mean, I, th- I think start with that idea of him saying, when he looks back on this incredibly painful failure in 1982, where basically almost loses his career as an investor right at the start and, and has to borrow four grand from his father, who was a, a jazz musician. I mean, wasn't, wasn't like a, a rich guy. So it was a very humiliating and painful thing. And so Ray's response of saying, oh, it was so good. It was such a painful experience is incredibly revealing because what you're saying is you actually want to lean into your pain and not bury your own mistakes, your flaws, your failures from sight. So most of us most of us want to hide from the things that went wrong or that feel wrong with us. And so there was a moment in that interview where I sort of, uh, I, um, I said to him, look, I, I, when, I, when I look at your new book, this thing, your, um, your personal journal, you talk about how to find the biggest obstacle to your success. And I look in my own life and I feel kind of ashamed to admit it, but I'm not systematic. I'm not process-driven. I'm scattered. And I felt kind of flushed as I said this to him. And his response is, is like, no, no, that's great. And so he's not looking at my embarrassment about this flaw in my wiring and my personality or whatever it is. He's, he's looking at it and saying, what a fantastic thing. You've identified this enormous thing that's, a, that's an obstacle for you. And now that you've identified it and unearthed it and not been ashamed of it and, and buried it from view, you can actually deal with it. That's an immensely important idea. And that's something I've been thinking about really intensively in recent weeks, both before the interview, because I was preparing for it and thinking about what, what my biggest obstacles are in life. And since then, and, and one of the great lessons from Dalio is that you need this self-reflection. You need you need to start by looking, looking at your own wiring, looking at your own values, looking at what's important to you, looking at your strengths and weaknesses in a really honest way. And so instead of being ashamed of it, look directly at it. So then you know what you're dealing with. You know, you know the hand that you've been dealt. And so one of the things that Ray said to me in that interview is, look, I have a terrible rote memory. I couldn't remember things. I did badly at school when it was about rote memory. Um, and so I started writing down principles because it helped me deal with my encounters with reality. And so one of the things that he did was develop this habit of writing down principles to, I, I think, in a way to, 
to guide him because maybe he couldn't remember certain things. I don't know. He was, it, it gave him a way to, to, to force him to reflect on what had gone wrong. Another thing that he did is he would see, for example, that, that he'd messed up in 1982 because he was too audacious. He was too bold, too arrogant. There was too much hubris, too much self-confidence. And so his workaround, once he knew that that was a flaw in his character or a vulnerability rather than a flaw, his workaround was to surround himself with incredibly smart people who were not afraid to say that he was wrong. And in a way, you think about Buffett and Munger, and they've done the same thing, right? Buffett, Buffett has said that Munger is the abominable no man because Munger is smart enough and difficult enough and opinionated enough and feisty enough that he can say to Warren, no, I think you're totally wrong about that. And so part of the power of that, that relationship is that they've structured it so that you can be challenged by someone who's really, really smart. So, so when, I, when I'm kind of self-referential about this and I think, okay, so what, what do I take away? How do I apply these lessons from Dalio? One of the things I did is I went away and I did the principles you character assessment test, personality assessment test that he, he developed with people like Adam, Adam Grant and um, it's in the show notes for the episode with Dalio. And so, so you, you answer all of these questions, you start to get a sense of your wiring. And so I'm looking at this and it's, it's, it's kind of shocking. I know you've done personality assessment tests before and are a big believer in them. Um, when I do it, I, I come up, uh, there are all of these, uh, these archetypes that describe different personalities. So, so, so mine, not surprisingly, uh, tends towards creativity, right? So so excited by novelty, intuitive, curious, original thinker, all of that stuff, fascinated by new, new ideas, comfortable in a chaotic and, and disorganized environment. And so, so on creativity, I'm like way up there. And then I think on the, on the thing, on the measurement for organization, um, I don't know, I think I came, I, I, it was something like 2%. I mean, it was so embarrassingly low. Like the lack of the lack of systematization, um, it just it's just not part of part of my wiring, right? And and similarly, uh, you know, there are other people, you know, who have these archetypes of technician or implementer, which are the archetypes I'm least like. And so they're really organized. They really like structure, processes. They're methodical. They're orderly. I'm I'm just not built that way. So. So if I'm prepared to look honestly at that wiring, not necessarily as a, as a shameful flaw, but as just the reality, it's part of, it's part of who I am. It's part of the gift. That's, that's how my creator made me. I'm sorry. And then I can start to say, okay, so what are the solutions? And so what Ray Dalio said in that episode is part of the solution is you work with people who, who make up for your own weaknesses, who are strong where you're weak. So, so that's been kind of a revelation to me. And it, this may sound really obvious to other people, but I can now see that my, my deficiencies in areas like efficiency, orderliness, systematization, practicality, it's not because I'm recalcitrant. It's not because I'm not trying hard. It's actually how I'm wired. And so I have to find people to partner with who are more systematic. So, so even, you know, look, working, working with the Investors Podcast Network, 
the fact that you have this amazing team in the Philippines who have all of these structures and processes in place is incredibly helpful for me. That, that's a structure that, allow, that gives me the space to do what I need to do creatively, where I'm thinking, who should I interview? What questions should I ask? How can I be present and intuitive about what they're really telling me and go in a different direction? So that all plays to my strengths. But then, you know, for me to figure out the deadlines, I've never really figured out the deadline for my, my episodes. I, I, I don't know. I sort of have some sense of it, but it's really hard for me. Does, does any of that make sense, Stick? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and I, could, yeah, I, I could just say like here in, in the company, uh, that, that, that's true. You know, actually, we, everyone here on the team have done a personality test. And we actually did that after read Redalio's book, Principles. And he talked about how important it was. And, you know, a lot of people don't like that because it's kind of failed to put into boxes and it's called personality types and it sort of like had a bad connotation. But you're actually doing it as a kindness because you want to treat people the best possible way. But, but in, a, in a large organization, it's hard to treat people well if you don't really know them. And of course, those closest to them would know them. But then there are some people... Another place in the organization that might not know how to, to speak with them the best possible way and, and what their strengths and weaknesses are. So everyone on the team here have been asked to take a personality test. And the only person who uh, hasn't handed that in yet, that's you, William, which probably based on this conversation isn't, isn't too uh, surprising. But I'm, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus when I'm saying this, but there's, you know, you're totally right. <laughs> when we're talking about like the structure and that part. And it, it is something that we, are, that we are using. It's something we learned from Redalio. Like everyone here, on the team have read the book and we applied a lot of his, his principles to our organization because it is an act of kindness. We want to be a kind, kind company. And, you know, there, there are some people that want things a certain way, but, you know, it's easier to help people with what they need help with if they tell you. So <laughs> it, come, it, comes from a, it comes from a good place. Well, it's also funny when I looked at the scores that I had for things like doing things my own way, breaking rules, stuff like that, being, being independent, being a conceptual thinker, I was like 98%, 99%. I mean, like sort of the, the degree to which I want autonomy is kind of extraordinary. Like, like, like the, the thing about not wanting guidance, I think I was 99%. And, and so that totally makes sense with the way that I went about my book, for example, where I just hold off for five years. I missed my deadline by two years. And I just was obsessed with trying to make it as good as I possibly could. So if it, if it failed, it wasn't because I hadn't put heart or soul into it. I was going to put everything into it. It was all about quality. And, and I couldn't really explain why I did it that way. And then when I look at, the, um, at my personality assessment, I can see how much I dislike rules and, and routines, how rebellious, how independent I am, how little I want guidance but also how obsessed with quality I am. Um, it sort of makes sense. And so none of, none of this is either good, good or bad. It just is. And so, so I, I don't want to look at my being scattered or unstructured as a sort of shameful weakness, even though I kind of am ashamed of it and I regard it as a weakness and it makes me feel vulnerable to, to admit it to you and the world. I need to actually look at it in the same way that Dalio looked at his flaws and weaknesses and say, okay, this is the hand I was dealt. How, how do I structure my life 
so that I'm, I'm playing the right games for me. I'm playing games that I can win. And so when I look, for example, at Guy Spear, I can see he's got this extraordinary woman, Chantal, who, who used to run a prison for war criminals, then was basically sort of semi, semi-retired and then came in and has sort of organized Guy's life. And that is such an amazing thing to have a hugely organized person come in and organize someone like Guy who says, look, I, I, I have ADHD. I'm, I'm all over the place. I, it's easy for me to, I mean, he said to her at this, when he was first interviewing her, he said, look, I, I, can, I can leave the door of our office open in Zurich because, you know, I just forgot and then I'll go to the airport and maybe I've forgotten my ticket or my, or my passport. How, how would you deal with that? And she's like, oh, that's fine. I got one of those at home. You know, like, like she's, she's used to dealing with very brilliant people who don't have that sense of organization. And, and when I mentioned this, that I'd done the test of Bill Miller the other day, he's like, oh man, I bet I would do really badly on the, on the organization stuff. And so Bill has got really lucky, I suspect, that he's structured his life. So, so he has this incredible assistant, Darlene, who's been keeping him on track for the last 25 years or so, so that he's free to think. and. So, so I think part of, part of what's a frustration to me is that I, I, I think as someone who's, who's been writing books and doing podcasts and writing articles and stuff in re, over the last decade or so and ghostwriting books, I haven't really had a structure, a formal structure that I used to have when, say, I edited the, the Asian edition of Time magazine or the European, Middle East, and African edition of Time. So there, because there were people who were very, very organized and systematic, I was free to do the stuff that I was better suited to. And I think part of, the, part of the realization that I've had personally is that I've sort of set myself up in this independent way where I don't necessarily have the, the infrastructure that I would have if I were working for another company. So I've somehow got to set that up and bear the cost for it myself. Um, and so things like, you know, I have, a, I, I do some public speaking. And so I have a speaker's agency that represents me and they take a big slug of my speaking fees. And I'm like, wow, you know, couldn't I do it myself? And I'm like, no, like to be able to hand that off to someone. So I don't have to actually create an invoice or figure out, you know, like I, I need to just accept the fact that the cards I've been dealt uh, when, when, it, when, it, when it comes to organization and structure are the worst possible cards. And the cards that I've been dealt when it comes to thinking of new ideas or exploring concepts are weirdly high. And then there, and then there are idiosyncrasies. Like one of the things that, that I'm sort of embarrassed about when I look at my assessment is it's really clear to me that I care what people think of me to a really high degree. I really care about being liked and respected. And so I can write as much as I want about Buffett's idea of the inner scorecard, living by an inner scorecard and only, only judging yourself by your standards. But the reality is, I really care what people think of me. I, can't, I, I can deny that and pretend to be something, but I'm, I'm also in this peculiar position that now, now I know from this assessment that I care what people think of me but not enough that I'm going to do what they say. I'm still going to do, I'm still going to do it my way and break the rules. And then I'm in this tortured position that I still want them to love me. And so, so being aware of your own flaws and foibles and idiosyncrasies 
I think is a hugely valuable thing. And, and so I'm not trying to be self-referential here. I'm, I'm actually trying to sort of, sort of say, I, I think our listeners would do really well to, to study what Ray said in that ap- episode, but also really to go through the process of doing, doing that personality test, go through that book, your personal journal, and really try to figure out, like, what do you care about? What are your values? What's a priority for you? And then you look back and you're like, well, how could I possibly have taken that job with those people? Like, what, why would I ever have thought that would work? Of course it wouldn't work. Whereas I look at my partnership with you, Stig, and, and the Investor Podcast Network, and I'm like, this actually is kind of a great partnership with me. It's like people I like who are honorable, who are trying to teach stuff, share valuable information, interested in concepts. I have a lot of independence. You're, you know, whenever I've asked you for advice on stuff, you sort of say, well, yeah, here's my view, but just do it, you know, trust your own instincts. So you're giving me tremendous support and, and in autonomy at the same time. And so one of the things that Ray said to me in that interview is, is life is really all about understanding your own personality and preferences and t- talents, and then picking, as he put it, suitable paths. I, I had great trouble pronouncing paths because to me it's paths. But that's a really important insight. And it's and like many of the great truths in life, it's actually a really banal and platitudinous insight. It's not that profound. But but as Munger would say about investing, it's simple, not easy. And so when you come across a, a truth like that, you need to take it really seriously, I think, if it resonates with you. And so you need to say, okay, let me figure out who I am, what I'm like, how I'm wired, what I care about, what my priorities are, what a truly abundant life means for me. And then let me try to pick a profession, structure my day, structure my activities as much as I can to play to those strengths. Because if I'm playing somebody else's game that really doesn't suit me, I'm going to be absolutely miserable. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. 
If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear, upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. So many things to unpack there, William. And it, it, it's so true. Let me give you an example. I was speaking with a guy the other day and talked about how much nonfiction a person should read. <laughs> and, and I told guy that sometimes I feel, I don't, I'm not saying guilty is the right word here, but there's some things I want to be smarter about, including investing. And, you know, there's an opportunity cost. You know, I only have 24 hours a day like everyone else. So if I sit reading one of the classics, I'm not reading nonfiction you know, or, you know, I'm, I'm not reading about investing or whatnot. And he talked about how he went through a phase of wanting to clone Buffett. And I think he also mentioned this in, in, in one of your books, William, where he was so relieved from, from meeting Buffett that, oh, he's just playing such a different game than I'm playing. So I, I shouldn't be stressed about not being Warren Buffett because I'm guy. So you know, I should be the best version of myself and be very, very aware of that. It's just so profound to have that type of, of insight. And I could just, you know, let me give you an example. Like whenever we started working together, William, that was, that was the most pleasant way of starting a partnership. Uh, it, the, the only other time I've done something similar been whenever I started working with Preston. I would imagine that we probably wrote a contract because it would sound weird if we didn't. I, I don't really remember, which probably also makes me sound a bit disorganized. But I remember you're like... Uh, this is the type of relationship I have with this person. And it's like, I trust you, you trust me. I'm going to say yes to whatever you want to offer me and offer X, Y, C. And you're like, sure, you know, true to your word. <laughs> like, you're like, that's, that's fine. And then you sent me, like, I sent you the annual report and you said like, oh, if you think it should be paid more or less, that's also fine. We can always talk about it, but I rely on your better judgment. And I sent you like, uh, yeah, you know, we had a great 2022, you know, I think we had like, $2.2 million in, in free cash flow. And then I was saying, but we're also running a deficit right now. And for the foreseeable future, you know, advertising being a boom bust cycle, I'm paying to go to work. And it's not like 10 bucks. It's like serious money. I'm, I'm paying to go to work. So I'm taking money from my own account and putting it into TIP. And, and that's perfectly fine. That's, that's the nature of how this type of business is. And so, and you're like, okay. <laughs> like, and how wonderful is that to have that type of, of, of relationship? So. We also did this nutty thing when we were first structuring our contract. I hope I'm not speaking out of school by saying this, where you were saying, well, so, you know, we'll see how many downloads you get in the first month, because that's when you get most of the downloads for an episode, and, and then you'll get paid based on that. And I was like, nah, nah, we should, we should build in deferred gratification. So let's see how it does after a year. And so I basically structured it so that I wouldn't get paid a penny for a year over a year. That's kind of nuts, but it's sort of, but there's, but it built in, it built in a principle that I think is really valuable, which is the deferral of gratification, thinking more long-term. 
And so I don't, I don't know, there was something very, very characteristic of both of us in the way that we handled these negotiations, that it was, it was an act of personal trust. And it was long term, and you were transparent. So when I asked you whether, whether I should be getting paid more money recently, you, you were totally transparent about the situation. And I was like, okay, great. And um, I, I don't know, I think that requires you that requires you to be partnering with people who are honorable and decent. And so this gets back to something that, that Nick Sleep said in my book, where Nick and, Nick and Kay Sakaria, who, who goes by the name Zach, had this extraordinary partnership that Nick said, look, it, it, it was built on kindness. And he said that originally they were going to structure it so that um, they would be 50-50 shareholders in their, in their hedge fund business. And that, that was what Nick wanted to do. Even though in many ways, he was kind of the alpha dog and was on top of the world and had been, a, been in the investment business successfully for years managing money, whereas Zach was being tortured working at Deutsche Bank in an institutional sales job that he detested. And so in some ways, Nick could easily have demanded a, a better deal. And he's like, no, 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 it'll be 50-50. And then Zach says, no, I want you to have 51% and me to have 49% so that if we ever disagree about anything, you'll make the final decision. And then Nick said, when somebody hands you a, a loaded revolver like that and says, here, shoot me if you want, how can you possibly take advantage of them? And so because they were both right in their judgment of the other person's decency and kindness and sense of honor, it's really worked out. And I... I, I don't know. I think it's such an interesting model for how to do business. You know, Buffett says the same thing about Munger, where he says in, in the introduction, in the forward, I think it is, to Janet Lowe's biography of Munger, he says, I've, I've never seen Charlie take advantage of anyone in 41 years. And I've, I've, knowing, I've seen him knowingly take the worst end of a deal with me and others. And, and he takes more of, the, more of his share of the blame than he deserves. And I don't know. So if you go back to what we were saying before about the importance of relationships and you think, okay, so a successful and happy and abundant life is going to have really good relationships with the people you work with, with your family, with your friends, that sort of thing. How do you get that? What Munger says is, look, we have a really simple system. He says, if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. And so that's a really helpful distillation of wisdom from a 99-year-old polymathic genius. When Munger is saying, if you want to have a good partner, be a good partner. So, so then I have to think, well, what's Stig going through? What are the pressures on him of running a business? What, what are the pressures on the team in the Philippines if I can't remember my deadlines? And so, so I, try, I try, despite my lack of efficiency or structure, at least to be kind and polite and respectful and thankful and and. And that's sincere, right? I mean, I do feel respect and, and gratitude. And, and at the same time, I'm also aware of the fact that, you know, I have this vulnerability and the lack of structure and the lack of systems. And, and it's not really my fault. Like, it just is kind of the way I was built. But I have to try to develop systems to overcome it. That's uh, so well said, William. And I want to say, speak, speaking of, of, of this, and, and perhaps we can use this transition into talking about Chalamonger person we, we uh, referenced quite a few times here uh, on this episode already, and of course, throughout the story of, <laughs> of our podcast. So this question or this clip I'm going to, to play for you here is from the Danish Journal, 
Q&A that he's doing together with uh, Becky Quick. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like going back and forth. So let's just play it. And then perhaps we can, we can talk about later what we, what we took away from it. Here we go. This one comes in from Matt. And he says, throughout your experience with Berkshire Hathaway, what are a few of the things that have surprised you most based upon some of your previous rational thoughts and ideas? Also, how have you used some of those surprises in your quest to become a better learning machine? Uh, these are all. Well, I would say the things that some of the things that surprised me the most was how how much dies that the business world is very much like the physical world, where all the animals die in the course of improving all the species, so they can live in niches and so forth. All the animals die, and eventually all the species die. That's the system. And when I was young, I didn't realize that same system applied to what happens in capitalism to all the businesses. They're all on their way to dying is the answer. So that other things can replace them and live. And it causes some remarkable death. Imagine having Kodak die. It was one of the great trademarks of the world. There was nobody that didn't use film. They dominated film. They knew more about the chemistry of film than anybody else on earth. And of course, the whole damn business went to zero. And look at Xerox was once shown the world. It's just a pale shrink. It's just a, a nothing compared to what it once was. So practically everything dies if you, yeah, on a big enough time scale. When I was young enough, that was just as obvious then, I didn't see it for a while. You know, things that looked eternal and had been around for a long time, I thought likely be that way when I was old. But a lot of them have disappeared. Practically everything dies in business. None of the eminence lasts forever. Think of all the great department stores. Think of how long they were the most important thing in their little community. They're way ahead of everybody in furnishing credit, convenience in all seasons. You know, convenience back and forth. Use the same banks of elevators and so forth, multiple floors. It looked like they were eternal. They're basically all dying or dead. Once I understood that better, I think it, it made me a better investment investor, I think. I mean, the same can be said for, for managers. I've, I've, I've talked with Doug McMillan of Walmart, who carries around in his wallet, like on him, he carries around a list of the top retailers over the decades. And nobody's ever the same. You know, you can- Yes, who are gone. Yes, yes. Of course, retailers live in terror because... You can die. Some get it. Some get it's a better way of doing it. You just die, like those department stores did. The ones that you invested in early on, you mean? Is it Baltimore? Well, no. Most of the think of the department stores that are gone, just chain yeah. after chain after chain, and big downtown. That they're not weakened. They're dead. They're gone, dead. And to have IBM have the huge position it once had in terms of utter dominance. And now it's just one of the also-rans. And it's still an admirable place. I'm sure they have a lot of talent left in IBM. It doesn't help you. You die even though you're talented and hardworking. So I, I really like Charlie Munger's response here. Perhaps I could, I could actually hop to another clip that he's also doing. We, we're going to make sure to link to this. I want to say it's like two hours and 30 minutes or something like that. You can find it on, on YouTube for free and just, just watch it. But if I can just jump to an, actually another thing and then perhaps go back to, to uh, what you talked about here in the clip. Becky asked Munger how many uh, asset managers that was worth uh, their fees. 
and he said five percent or less. It sort of like goes back to to what we talked about here in the clip, where capitalism is just so it's just so brutal, and you know, great businesses come and go. You know, he he talked about Xerox and Intel and other companies. Well, Xerox is gone now, Intel is still here, but in a very different shape than they used to be. And it's hard not to think about. For an active investor like me, whether I should invest passively, whenever you hear that, even even Munger talks about how how difficult things uh, are now, and I'm sure many of the listeners have thought the same. You know, the tenure in the S and P 500 is just getting shorter and shorter. Everything moves faster and faster, uh, and you have more and more evidence about why passive investing is such a persuasive strategy. Also, because you are fighting against your own instincts. So even if you were quote unquote as good as the market. You might still do some some silly stuff because you cannot control your own emotions, and it's it's one of those things where you can have an intellectual discussion and say, "I don't become emotional," and then something like COVID happens and your the stock market is down twelve percent in a day, and you're like, "This doesn't feel that well," and it's it's not the same whenever you're it's play money on a or you know fictitious portfolio. It's different if it's like, "Yeah, my kids in this school, and I need to you know save up for college, and I have." Hospital bills, like it's just it's just very different. So, anyways, all of that being said, I'm still investing passively. Uh, sorry, I, yeah, well, I, actually, I have a few index funds too, but I am investing actively, despite what Munger is talking about here. And I, I wanted to talk about that decision before I threw it over to to William here a bit because it's something I reflected on quite a few times here over the past quarter. I was looking at my brokerage account here the other day, and I was. It turned out that I was uh, marginally outperforming the market over the past five years, and so whenever I I first saw it, you know, it it got me got me excited. You know, I patted myself on the back for a few seconds, like, "Oh my God, you're that amazing!" But then I thought to myself, "Stake, you're the most ridiculous person in the world. Think about this marginal outperformance. You could have bought a passive index and saved." Thousands of hours, not reading investing books and 10Qs and 10Ks, like you, you do not appreciate your own time. Like that's ridiculous, and you could be down tomorrow. Why? Why are you celebrating that? And so I, I thought a lot about that, and and I had this discussion with some of my friends here、uh, the other day. So I have one friend who is financially independent after selling his company, and now he now has this quote unquote problem:、uh, what to do with his with his time now. Uh, because he's he's mid thirties, retired. Like, what do you what do you do? Like, you have all this time all of a sudden. So he's very creative and sees investing as a way to preserve his purchasing power. Like, he read a ton of investing books, so he definitely had the interest. But he would really like to spend as much、uh, a little, as little time as possible actually investing and just live off that income if he can. He's he wanted to spend his time on something else, which I completely、uh, respect. Perhaps that approach resonates with quite a few of our listeners. And then you have the The other approach, which might resonate with very fewer listeners, and I kind of felt that was interesting too. So, I have another friend who is、uh, also an entrepreneur, quite well off, making close to seven figures a year, and he's been asking me like, "What should I invest in?" And I said that he should probably invest in a index fund, like track the world market. Done, boom. And he said that he kind of felt uncomfortable doing that because he likes the hustle, like he likes to work, and 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 just like, oh, I'm gonna get my expected. Five percent or whatever, however you want to make that multiple, but like it doesn't sit well with him because he was used to doing the hustle. And he said to me, and I don't know if this sounds ridiculous, but if he could still get five percent but just work hard for it, he would almost prefer it to not having to work for it and still get the same return. 
And so whenever he said that, I was I was laughing, but I was like, wait, Stig, you were doing the same thing. <laughs> you were do, you were getting a market return, but you're putting a bunch of time into it. And why are you doing it? That's it sounds so ridiculous. So I want to paint a bit more color around it because in case there are some people out there who feel the same kind of conflicting emotions. So I love watching football. I absolutely love watching football. I do not get paid to watch football. I'm, I'm sitting in my couch watching my favorite team. I have a lot of fun. This is soccer. Yes. Sorry. Oh, yes. For the, for the American, American listeners. Yes. You call it. Yes. Soccer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we call it football yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, right. real, real football. Real, real football. Yes. <laughs> so, and I was like, I'm sort of like trying to defend my own silliness by using the same analogy to, uh, for investing because I love the process, process so much. I, I love reading 10Ks and 10Qs. Like it, it's as much fun for me as, you know, uh, watching football. I know it's going to sound ridiculous, but like if you told me like, yeah, you're not going to beat the market and you would probably long-term be absolutely right about it, I would probably still do it because it's, why would I not do something, again, optimizing for happiness, why would I not do something that really, really makes me happy? If you turn out to be really good and you make money, then, then it'll pay off. But if not, it's a little, it's a bad analogy in some way to say it's like going to a casino, but losing, losing only a very small amount. Say, say you went to a casino and you said, okay, I'm going to gamble, but I'm not going to gamble more than a hundred bucks. I'm going to get to eat in these really good restaurants at the Wynn Casino or whatever it is. I, I went to say at the Wynn Casino once because I was working on a, on a book project and staying in a, in, a, in a beautiful room there. And so I didn't gamble at all, but I got to enjoy the food and, and you know, I went to a great show and stuff like that. So I don't know, you could say it's, it's a little bit like that. You're, you're prepared to lose a little bit of money to support a hobby that you really enjoy. But there's upside here if you're right. If, if the danger is that we delude ourselves, right? So it's like people thinking they're good drivers. And so you have to, you have to it all starts, I think, with self-honesty and self-awareness, you know, to look at yourself and say, do I actually have any kind of competitive advantage? And when I said to Ed Thorpe, how can I tell if I have any competitive advantage? He said, well, if, if you're having to ask that and you don't really have a good answer, then you probably don't. And it's very deeply unsettling. And I, I mean, I, I have some competitive advantage potentially in that I know a lot of great investors. And so you could see, you know, so, so look, like I talked to Bill Miller for a couple of hours the other day. I know how Bill Miller's invested. Um, it would be easy for me to say, well, Bill really likes this stock, this stock, and, and this cryptocurrency, and I should do that. But that's really hard for me as well, because my situation is different than Bill's, and my temperament is different than Bill's. So I'm not playing the same, the same game. It would be hard for me to load up on Bitcoin. Whereas for him, he's perfectly happy with situations where there's an asymmetry, where he could lose everything, but if he's right, he'll make enormous returns. For me, I'm less comfortable with that because of my personality. So I think a lot of this stuff, a lot of this stuff really stems from self-awareness. And so one of the things that I've done in terms of sort of resolving this conflict between passive and active investing is, is because I'm kind of torn and I have the delusion that I can probably, probably do well by investing with two or three really good active investors. There's a portion of my 
my portfolio in, I think it's three different active funds that are all managed by honorable people who are very smart and very driven. And then I've owned forever two index funds. So I have the, and I'm not telling anyone they should do what I do. I'm just telling you how I'm trying to resolve my ambivalence about this question. So I own a Vanguard Total International stock fund and a Vanguard Total Stock Market index fund. And I think one of them, the, the, the US fund, has a 0.04 expense ratio, and the international one is 0.17%. So incredibly low expenses. And I pretty much split it 50-50 between those two. And then I just keep adding to it. And it's in an IRA or a 401k or some, you know, personal 401k. And so, so it's structured in a way that's tax efficient. It's somewhat diversified. I'm not, you know, very low expenses. I keep adding to the pot and I'm not making a big bet where I say, I'm sure the US is going to continue to do better than foreign stocks. I'm, I'm happy to to take the hit in recent years of investing equally in foreign markets, which turned out to be better last year. And then I remembered this, um, I, I, I wrote about this briefly in the chapter that I wrote in my book on simplicity and Joe Greenblatt. And I talked about this interview that I had with Jack Bogle, the founder of, of Vanguard, which now manages what, seven, eight, nine trillion dollars, some outrageous sum. And so many years ago, I talked to the late Jack Bogle, maybe 20 something years ago, and one of the things that he said to me is, look, the ultimate in simplicity is to get a balanced index fund. And you just get one fund that has bonds and stocks in it. And so while I was writing that chapter, I actually did that for my wife's retirement account. And I said, okay, there's, there's a series of Vanguard funds where you get, I think it's a, a mix of a US index, a stock index fund and a foreign stock index fund and a US bond fund and a foreign bond fund. And so you've got four funds within this one thing, and it's really low expenses. And so I bought that for my wife. And I was like, that's a really elegant solution. And it seemed kind of stupid uh, for a couple of years because bonds were paying nothing. And, but I've been too lazy to change anything with it. And now bonds are paying something. And also stocks did terribly. And so over the last year, so you know, I think it'll probably do fine over the long run. And so I, I just remembered this thing that the Bogle had said to me, where he said, "Look, all of these star fund managers proved to be comets." And he said, "They they light up the firmament for a moment in time, and he said then they burn out and their ashes float gently down to earth." And it, it, Bogle was a great writer and speaker; he was very eloquent. And I I just loved that line. And and he said, "Look, this happens almost all the time." And so it's not all the time. It's not like nobody can beat the market. But you look at the people who beat the market, look at someone like Joel Greenblatt, who had these extraordinary returns where he, he averaged 40% a year for 20 years, which is just out, outrageous. And I've, I've spent a fair amount of time with Joel over the years and, and wrote about him at length in my book. And you know he has a behavioral advantage, right? He's very calm. He's very even-tempered. He's super rational, very, very patient, very analytical. And he's also incredibly competitive. And that's another thing that I see with all of the greatest investors is they're super competitive. And so it, it's not just that they're intellectually strong, that they have some kind of intellectual advantage, or they, they do. I mean, you know, you look at someone like, like Munger or Bill Miller or Ed Thorpe, I mean, these are supremely smart humans. There's also a temperamental advantage. They tend to be calm and rational, analytical very disciplined, 
I'm not really built that way. I mean, when, when I look at that personality assessment, my way of making decisions is almost totally intuitive. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make a super rational decision about whether to partner with you and the Investors Podcast Network. I, I did some research and some studies and we talked at some length. But basically, I look at you and I'm like, oh, I like steak. You're a really nice guy, honorable person. And um, that's an intuitive judgment. And, and that serves me in certain ways in life. I don't think it necessarily serves me in investing. Because, you know, one of the things I found the other day after I spent a couple of hours with Bill Miller is I really wanted to buy Bitcoin. And I was saying to this other friend of mine who's a well-known fund manager, part of the reason why I wanted to buy it is that I love Bill. And I feel like this sense of gratitude to him and appreciation for him. And in a way, there's this sort of this tribal sense of allegiance. And so there's this, un, uh, there's this sort of emotional, irrational desire to buy something almost as a way of declaring my, my psychological and emotional allegiance to him. That's a weird quirk in my character that probably allows me to interview people in a good way because I'm empathetic. I get into their minds. I understand how they view the world. There's a, there's a certain degree of intuition and rapport that's really good for an interviewer, but it's not very rational when it comes to picking stocks or cryptocurrencies. You're probably right about that. I thought a lot about it myself. For example, investing with Manish. I felt that Manish was the right, right way of merging a person with good values, but also someone who could outperform the market. I, I'm very humble about my own, my own skill set and do not have any illusions that I, I can beat the market. And, and what happened was probably more luck than anything else. And so whenever I invested with him last year, I couldn't help but consider what kind of bias do I have to do this? Is, that, is it because of some kind of tribal thing that you were, you, you were talking about before? Now I can look back and say that the market was down and then Monis's fund was up 35% over the last three quarters of 2022 because Monis is just super smart. But I think it's also important not to be prone to what any do calls resulting. I think I, I could have been too hard on myself if things have gone bad and I'd be like, oh my God, that's only because, you know, there's some kind of, I don't know what you, what you want to call that, but going back to the word tribal again of like having invested with one of a, a person like Manish, is there something emotional there? I remember you talked uh, on the episode with Annie Duke about how you invested with invested in Baba after having a discussion with Charlie Munger, or like a virtual bronze type thing. And you know, there was something about that type of, not, I'm not saying same approval because that was not, uh, not the specific case, but like the yeah, you're in the same tribe. So Yeah. I had Munger and Lou Simpson telling me how much they loved my book and telling me that they'd both been investing in Alibaba. So I have two of the greatest investors telling me that I'm great. And here we are. We know from my personality assessment that I really crave respect and liking and admiration, right? So I'm very vulnerable to this. And I look up tremendously to Munger as like one of the smartest, most brilliant guys around. And so here's Munger saying, you know, yeah, your book's one of the best investing books ever written. And so I'm like, is, this is like amazing for me, right? And then Lou Simpson says something really nice about it as well. And Lou's one of the great investors of all time. And so, so this is like this banner day for me, right? Like I'm just like floating on air. And so how do I memorialize this day? Partly by buying Alibaba. That's an act of allegiance 
to these two great, great investors who just told me how wonderful I am, at least in my interpretation of it. I mean, Munger probably doesn't remember, remember my name at this point, but you know, for, for this brief moment, I felt this flush of, of importance. And so there's an irrationality in that purchase of Alibaba that's come back to haunt me. But at the same time, you know, I think it's down about 50, 55% since I bought it. But at the same time, I didn't put that much in it, so it doesn't really matter. And it wasn't that stupid an investment because it's a long-term investment in China, which is very beaten up. Um, everybody hated it in a sector that everybody hated. And it had been bought by two of the greatest investors. And I knew that they had done a lot of work and understood it. And I knew that Munger is very close to Li Lu, who's an expert on China. And so, so there were rational reasons to do it. And if I was wrong, it wasn't really going to hurt me. And as a diversifier, it's not a bad thing for me to have a long-term bet on you know, a centrally important company in China. And you know, so, so I'm down by half. It doesn't mean I can't send my kids to college or retire. It's okay. So, so I think you have, to, you have to be aware of your own flaws and vulnerabilities and irrationalities and hedge against them in some way. So I was talking to a friend the other day about my mistake with Alibaba and then my desire to buy Bitcoin after my conversation with Bill. And my friend said, uh, yeah, we had a rule at this investment firm where I used to work where there was a cooling off period for a week after you met with management of a company. And I thought that was really smart, right? Because you're very easily sold on stuff. You have all of these hypesters who are a great, great salesman who believe in the future of their company and they can sell you anything. So to have a cooling off period is not a bad thing. And so, so for me to, to calm down, look back with a glow of affection on my meeting with, with Bill Miller, but not be so not, uh, not be so grateful for the fact that he treats me nicely and that I need to be treated nicely and appreciated, that it, it skews my judgment. So part of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm hedging against my own fallibility and idiosyncrasy. And so I'm trying partly not to buy individual stocks. I only own three individual stocks. And one of them, one of them is um, one of them's Berkshire, which I regard kind of almost as a fund. And one of them is Seritage, which again, I bought after hanging out with Monish. And so it's the same floor in a way. It's like I, I fall in love with Monish, who's an old friend and someone I like and admire a great deal. And then I buy this stock because he'd bought 13% of the company at a time when it was hated. And what I was realizing in my conversation with Annie Duke is as I talked about Monish and as I talked about Charlie, I start to smile. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so vulnerable. Like, like, like I love these people. I really admire these outsiders who are rebels free thinkers, um, going against the crowd. Uh, and so it's a tremendous vulnerability for me. And so, so it's smarter for me on the whole to try to outsource the investing decisions and, and also to try to index because and, and, and sort of systematize. But at the same time, given that I'm writing and talking so much about investing, I also think it's, it's a pretty good thing for me to have some skin in the game and to understand in a very visceral sense, the emotions and the irrationality that go with making mistakes or doing well. And even with something like Seritage, it was so cheap that it's actually done pretty well anyway. So it's sort of made up for, you know, there was a margin of safety built in because it was so cheap. 
And so that's made up for my stupidity and irrationality. You know, I, I can't help not to, not to um, bring up the bats here, William, but later in this um, Q&A with, with Munger, he was asked about his Alibaba position and he said that he kind of felt he was, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, this is not exactly what he said, uh, people can, can uh, watch it themselves, but he was saying that he was so fascinated about this story of the Chinese internet and the e-commerce rising in, in China that he forgot that Baba was just another damn retailer. So as someone who also bought Alibaba, <laughs> perhaps for the same reasons as, as you, William, that did not make me feel good. And it was just screaming in me to sell after I heard that. But then one, one of the things that, that had been really been, been good to me was uh, I spoke already with, with Guy on, on one of the first episodes we ever did here on the show, which is very nice of, uh, of, of Guy. To, uh, to make himself available. And he talked about the, uh, the two-year rule and about he wanted to... There could be exceptions, but generally the rule was not to sell anything the first two years after you, you made the position. And I made the position, what, a year and nine months ago or something like that. So I was like, no, that's not the two-year two rule, uh, two rule, which has been, which has been good because, you, as you said, you have to manage your own, your own biases. Yeah, and I have a five-year rule, so I'm really trying to prevent myself from doing stupid stuff because I, I sort of have to live with my stupidity if I mess up. But maybe that's a bad idea. I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. But I, I think it, I think it, I mean, Annie Duke had a good discussion of this in our conversation. It's worth people going, going back to because she, she was sort of making the point that you need to relitigate the situation, like go back and see, well, what's changed here? But I, I think there's something, there's something useful about having the five-year rule because it makes you less willing to make bets going in. If you know you're going to have to live with it, you'll make fewer bets. And so, look, I'm, I'm living with my Berkshire Hathaway bet. And I think of it, you know, I hope that I own it more or less indefinitely. I'm living with my bet on Guy. I've invested with him for, you know, whatever it is, 22 years so far. And I've said to him, I regard it as a 40-year investment. And so we'll see if I'm, if I'm wrong, fair enough. But I think, I think in a world where most people are very short-term, if you can push yourself towards being long-term and patient, that's a, that's a tremendous advantage. And so I, th- I think having a few simple rules in life is hard. Like, like when I just decide, for example, that I'm not going to eat in the morning, I won't eat before noon. That's pretty helpful. And then when I decided I wasn't going to eat any sugar this year, that was pretty helpful. So when I was in, when I was in Zurich and Klosters and stuff, dinner you know, would come with, with dessert and I'd be like, no, nah, I'm not eating any sugar. And it was very simple. It, it like clarified things because there was a rule. And then I think I was at some dinner, I can't remember where it was, where there was a, oh, I, I think I went to my sister-in-law's and she cooked a really nice meal and there was dessert and I would have felt rude if I hadn't eaten it. And once that rule was broken, it was like the floodgates were open. And so I think sometimes giving yourself a simple rule that you can't break is actually a really helpful thing. Well said, William. Well, William, we're a bit long on time here, as, as you always are, but I really want to go to the last part here of our discussion today, where we talk about the best books we read uh, the past quarter. Q1 is always a great quarter to read books and at least where where I live it's it's dark and it's cold, windy, you don't want to get go outside, so you can just curl up with a 
with a book or a 10Q or, or 10K, whatever cuts your fancy. And I, I want to give an honorable mention to Principles, your guided journal by Redalio. I did not put it on the list, the top five list, because it's not really an, an investment book. And I, I sort of like wanted to focus on, on that. So this is my curated, no particular order of the best five books I read in business over the past quarter. So Competition Demystified by Bruce Greenwald, wonderful book. The Little Book of Valuation by Aswat Demodoran. Benjamin Graham and the Power of Growth Stocks by Fred Martin. Big Money, Think Small by Joel Tillingham. And The Joys of Compounding by Gautam Bate. All yeah, wonderful Joel books. Joel Tillinghast, right? Yes. Sorry, what did I say? Uh, Tillingham. Yeah, Joel Tillinghast. Sorry. Sorry, yes. Wonderful book. So perhaps let's start with the, the joys of compounding here. This was a book that our co-host Clay Fink recommended to me. He said to me, like, I feel I could do four episodes in this book alone. So I, I sort of like had to pick it up. And I received it in the mail and I, you know, I flipped to the back and lo and behold, there's a gentleman called William Green. Who is that? So and handsome, handsome. I'm I'm pretty sure too. Yes. <laughs> so uh, so it says here, Gautam is a marvelous role model because he's such a joyful and passionate student of worldly wisdom. In this book, he gives us a powerful reminder of how enriching it is to dedicate ourselves to the pursuit of continuous lifelong learning. So with that, William, I want to throw it over to you and. And talk perhaps a bit about this wonderful book, The Joys of Compounding. Oh, sure. I, I was thinking as you were going through your list, I'm lucky that I actually know all five of those authors. So I'm totally, I'm totally biased because of personal relationships or interviews that I've done with these people in the past. And so Gautam is someone, is a very nice guy, really nice, really thoughtful, someone who came from a kind of modest background and was applied for so many jobs in investing and uh, you know he's been really open about how difficult it was for him to get hired and how persistent he was in launching himself as an investor and he's kind of indomitable in the way that he he persists and in the way that he's become a learning machine and so he's someone who's just really systematically gone about teaching himself the principles of investing and so there's something just very admirable about that as a role model, the sort of person who sets about synthesizing everything that he's learned from, from Buffett and Munger and Howard Marks and Kahneman and all of these great minds. And so I don't think, I don't think it's, it's not that it's a trailblazingly new book where he's gone and interviewed all of these people. It's that he's been incredibly committed about learning what all of these great minds have figured out and then synthesizing it. So, so you open the book, and I, I remember just at the very start, for example, it, it would have a line from Munger, the line where Munger said that the best thing a human being can do is to help another human being know more. And so it's full of things like that, where he's just, he's just distilled and synthesized so much wisdom about everything from living by an inner scorecard to delaying gratification. So, so I, I think there's something really, really central to learn from Gautam about, uh, I never quite know how to pronounce it, Gautam, Gautam, so I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong, but um, there's something really admirable about the way he set himself up to be a continuous learning machine. And then at the same time, he lives in this kind of humble way. He's not, he's not money obsessed. He's, he, you know, he set aside a certain amount of money. He's made a certain amount of money off his investing. And, 
and he's kind of happy with that. So he lives modestly and is just sort of playing playing the game that he really loves playing. And and so I I, I kind of admire him because of those qualities. And then, you know, the book is published by Columbia University Business Press, which picked up on the fact that he had written this self-published book. And Miles Thompson, who's this terrific editor there, who I've become friends with over the years, I think saw that there was something really good here and Kim did a new edition of it that was sort of new, improved, polished. And so so I also think it reflects the fact that Miles Thompson is kind of a, a, a terrific editor that he put out this great book. So definitely highly recommended The Joys of Compounding, not just by, by our friend William Green, forward by Guy Spear. Fantastic, fantastic book. I wanted, to, I wanted to highlight Joel Tillinghast's book, Big Money, Think Small. There are so many key takeaways. And, and if you are interested in learning a bit more, we, it's going to be a very quick run through here. William, you had him on, on, on your podcast, Richard Wise, a happier podcast not too long ago. Super, super smart person. And if possible, as kind and, and thoughtful as he is smart. Like it's, um, it, it was really a, a wonderful episode you, you did with him. Uh, I want to say that one of the, the, the favorite points that I had from Joel's book was how he reminded us that advertising spending can be an investment more than an expense. And even management themselves can't always distinguish between economic goodwill or just cast out the door. Future sales on the contract, you know, gap rules tells us that you know, it's all expense as a cost through the income statement. And then, you, of course, you can ask like a company or brand like Louis Vuitton whether they feel that advertising is money up the door, but that is just how it's, it's being treated. And so I, I kind of felt it would, it would be an interesting uh, segue to talk about the richest uh, man in the world. I don't know if, if people listening to this, if, if they, they think of who they think the, the richest person is, and I would imagine a lot of people would say Elon Musk, perhaps, or Jeff Bezos. They're, by the way, two and three, respectively, on that list. It's a gentleman uh, named Bertrand Anou. His net worth is more than $200 billion. He's founder, chairman, and chief executive officer, LVMH. So he owns, that's the company that owns Louis Vuitton, Dampignon, Tiffany & Company, and many other very well-known brands. And so uh, Arnaud famously referred this conversation he had with Steve Jobs, now the late Steve Jobs, and asked him if he thought, he being Steve Jobs, people would still use iPhones 30 years from now. And Jobs said that he didn't know. And whenever Jobs then turned the tables on that question, Arnaud said that Steve, I think people will still be drinking Dom Pyong in 30 years. We are selling part of history. And so I, I don't know if that, if that, <laughs> that was actually a, a real conversation. That's how the story goes. And, and, and that's what uh, Anu has been quoted to say. And, and I think it's important to understand that a brand is like any other asset. They produce income, but they both require initial investment and continuous spending to sustain their established uh, status. And you can even compare it to you know, PPE in that regard. And I also want to highlight, kind of like use that as a segue to highlight Bruce Greenwell's book, Competition Demystified. It's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And he talks about how you have to distinguish between brand value, which is the premium customers will pay for a product from a particular brand, could be Louis Vuitton, for example, and then economic value, which is the additional return on investment that brand helped generate. For example, Coca-Cola is a value brand, and here we're talking about economic value in a different way than Louis Vuitton. No one will pay thousands of dollars to be identified as a Coca-Cola drinker. 
but it's a valuable brand because it's very habit forming. Uh, let me just give you one simple example that he, he writes about in this book. When you go out for Mexican food, you might order Mexican beer, but you don't order Mexican cola. And I could also mention that we like to eat different types of meals, but you know, we often drink the same, whether it's your Starbucks coffee, whatever it is. So that was just, that was very brief. I went through, through those two books. Perhaps another time when you have a bit more time, we can, we can go more into depth with the books. I tell you one thing that I learned from Joel Tillinghast's book is, is his tremendous focus on not doing dumb stuff. So, so yeah, so he's focused on brands. He's focused on companies that are durable. So I think he's made a thousand times his money on Monster Beverage, which I talked to him about in, in the episode. So he's made money off enduring brands. But although Monster Beverage is probably about, about as far from Dom Perignon as, <laughs> as could be imagined. But yeah, a, a durable brand that he bought cheap many years ago and has held on to. But for me, the most powerful lesson I've learned from Joel Tillinghast, I think, is, is avoiding what Munger calls standard stupidities. And so when I first went to interview Joel Tillinghast at Fidelity's office in Boston several years back, I was trying to figure out, like, how has this guy beaten the market by such an enormous margin over so many years? I mean, he's, Peter Lynch said he's basically one of the greatest investors of all time. He's, he's been extraordinarily successful. And the more that I talked to Joel about how he's done it, the more clear it became that, that it's, it's partly by avoiding so many dumb things that blow up so many regular investors and, and professional investors. And so one thing he said to me is, look, he said, don't pay too much for any stock. Don't go for businesses that are prone to obsolescence and destruction. Don't invest with crooks and idiots. Don't invest in things you don't understand. So just think about that list of, of standard stupidities, as Munger would call them, that get us in trouble again and again, right? Think of the number of people who overpaid for hot tech stocks in the last year, where they, they got just eviscerated because they paid 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 times sales. And so there's this, um, there's this irrationality that creeps in, especially during bull markets, where you see other people making money and it becomes kind of intoxicating and you lose, your, you lose your connection to reality, to the underlying reality of the economic reality of the business. So even with something like LVMH, you know, I had a long discussion with Guy Spear about this when I was in Clusters and Guy's fascinated by LVMH and by the luxury, uh, the luxury brand business. And he's like, look, it's an incredible business and there are, there are certain benefits that you get when you have their scale because you can, you can kind of bully your way into the best stores and, the, the, uh, you, know, and you, you get your second and third brands in there because you've got such powerful brands. So there are definite advantages. But then he said, but I just can't pay that much for it. It's just too expensive. And so that's one of the things that's keeping Guy tethered to reality. It's just his sense of the valuations. And then this question of what businesses are prone to obsolescence and, and destruction. So you think, of, you think of Munger, his revelation during the Daily Journal annual meeting, where he's just saying, everything dies, everything is impermanent. And so it's really important just to, just to go into investing and life with a sense that things are impermanent. And so you know, a company that seems very powerful today may not be five years, 10 years from now. And so, and likewise, the conditions that are 
exist at the moment economically or in the market are not likely to prevail for several years, right? One of the things that Howard Marks talks about is that there's this kind of pendulum effect where the market goes from fear to greed or complacency to terror, overpriced to underpriced. And you see the same thing with the credit cycle. It goes from they'll lend money for anything and then suddenly they'll lend money for nothing. And so once you understand that we live in a world where everything is prone to change, everything is prone to die, and you know, there's creative destruction, you have to set yourself up to survive an uncertain future. And this is, this is one of the great lessons from Howard Marks, I think, and, and, and from Joel Tillinghast and Joel Greenblatt, Charlie Munger, Buffett, all of these great investors. You need to build in some margin of safety when you invest because the future is so un- unstable. It's so uncertain. Things that, are, things that are powerful and dominant now will not be in five, 10 years. I mean, who, you know, we have no idea whether, whether Tesla is, is going to live up to its promise. And so should you pay a very rich multiple for Tesla? I don't know. I couldn't bring myself to do it, but maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong. But at least you have to be aware of, of the danger that things that are ascendant now are likely not to be in future. And the things that are undervalued now uh, are likely to have their, their day in the sun one day. So, and, and then I think Tillinghast's idea of don't invest with crooks and idiots, that again gets back to the thing we were talking about right at the start of the conversation, which is it goes back to, to Buffett's point that, that you can't do a good deal with a bad person. You, you want to partner with good people. And, and then Tillinghast's idea that you don't invest in things you, can, you don't understand gets back to something that John Templeton told me 20-something years ago, where he said, stay away from your own ignorance. And so investing is really difficult, as we've discussed in this conversation. It's really hard to beat the market, but at least you can give yourself an advantage by avoiding standard stupidities. So don't, don't overpay. <laughs> don't assume that the future will look like the past. You know, diversify. Don't invest in things you don't understand. Like be a learning machine where you're you're constantly building your building your circle of competence, but at the same time trying not to delude yourself into thinking that you're better than you are and know more than you actually do. Well, to um to quote Charlie Munger, it's simple but not easy. Ha, huh. that's for sure. And I saw Bruce Greenwald the other day, Stig, and Bruce Bruce said to me that. He was talking about exactly that. He, w- he was saying that one of the things people feel when they listen to Buffett speak is, you know, he makes it sound so simple. And he's like, boy, is this not simple? This is not easy. It's really hard. And I, th- I think that's a, that's a worthy message for people to be aware of that, yeah, you can beat the market. Yeah, you can do it incredibly well, but you got to be good. You got to really take it seriously to be, to be a kind of mental athlete to win at this game. You need to be really good and you need to be driven and devote the time to it. And just on that note, competition demystified, this book is, uh, is a few years old. So I think it's from uh, 2005-ish. So Bruce goes through wonderful examples on different industries. And it's, it's so in- interesting to read about these companies that today are not performing well. And that, and the premise I also want to say in, in Greenwald's um, defense, because I don't want to make it sound like he's making any kind of stock recommendations at all. That's not the point of his book. He's talking about different industries, barrier of, of entry, using that as your framework of, of picking stocks. And it's just interesting to hear someone as smart as Bruce Greenwald talking about different industries 
18 years ago, and then think about how those industries look today. Whenever you read the book, it can seem like the barriers of entries are just impossible to penetrate. Not that, again, not that it's, it's Bruce's premise, but it can seem like that way whenever it's being explained. And then you read it and you're like, but that company doesn't exist anymore. Wasn't it, suppo- wasn't it supposed to be close to impossible? And yeah, yeah like you said before, Willing, that, was, that goes back to what, to what uh, Munga said, that one of the things that he learned throughout his life is just how the only thing constant is change. Yeah. And Bruce is profoundly brilliant. Bruce is someone, I, I, I was trying to seduce him into coming onto my podcast later in the year. And I, I think he's going to, I, and he doesn't talk often in public. So it'd be great to talk to him. He's, he's, a, he's a brilliant mind. Again, thank you for, for making time to, to speak with me here today, William. It's, it's always a lot of fun. Any concluding remarks, anything you kind of feel we should, we should touch on before we, uh, we end the episode? I, I guess, you know, you gave your, your five recommendations for books. I, I would add one recommendation that's not a book, but which is something I talked to Fred Martin about, which is, I think people should watch this movie, Free Solo, this documentary that I talked about at length with Fred Martin, which it's, it's about someone trying to climb El Capitan, which is basically 3,000 feet straight of granite. And this guy decides to do it without ropes, without, without any equipment. He's just going to do it free solo. And, um, and Fred's point is that it's a, uh, it's a brilliant example of risk mitigation, what this guy does. And I, I think it's, it's all about survival. It's all about risk. It's all about trying to take considered risk, intelligent risk, so that you'll actually survive. And, and I, I would just really encourage people to watch it. It's, I think it's on Disney+. Plus or Hulu, or both. And you can also get it on Amazon Prime. And so for those of us who have short attention spans and find it difficult to sit and read long books, you can treat yourself to uh, watching Free Solo and, and can listen to my discussion with Fred about it, who's very, very thoughtful about what it actually means, what you can learn about how to, how to survive as an investor based on, based on studying this great Free Solo climber, Alex Honnold. Wonderful. We'll definitely make sure to link to that in the show notes. William, on that note, let's end the episode here. Um, it was a lot of fun chatting with you, as always, William. So, so thank you for making yourself available. Thank you. It's always a delight, Stig. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.